stream 840 here so another disturbing story as a result of Charlottesville another tiki torture has apparently killed himself then we have a story here from Colin Liddell death by Spencer tiki torture kills himself after drugs bust so a devoted follower Richard Spencer rose to his leader's summons and marched with his comrades arm in arm to Charlottesville in 2017. Has died after committing suicide. The young man, Teddy Joseph von Newcomb, 35, was in the front rank of the notorious Tiki Torch March on Charlottesville. Served to raise Richard Spencer's profile in the national media. But the downside for von Newcomb of serving his Führer was that he became an unemployable loser and drifted into drug smuggling for chump change. He was facing trial for smuggling 15 kilos of deadly opioid at the time of his death. Okay, let's have a look here at uh, Staley March article. Torch-wielding neo-Nazi who shot to notoriety during 2017 Unite the Right riot kills himself after absconding from fentanyl trafficking trial. Shot himself at his Missouri home January 30th. So it sounds like marginalized movements attract marginalized people like this guy. So he was due in Arizona on a drug smuggling charge. He was a married father of five children under age nine. This is outrageous. He was a married father of five kids aged under nine. One of the most recognizable neo-Nazi faces at the 2017 Charlottesville rally. He was arrested March 17, 2021, entering the U.S. from Mexico, found with 15 kilograms of fentanyl pills in his car. He was paid $215 to smuggle them. I remember I had a therapist who said, you know, you, you give yourself away. You sell yourself out so cheap, just like this bloke, right? I mean, a father of five young kids was found dead by his wife outside of their spacious $400,000 mansion. Wow. So he became interested in Nazi Germany during high school. As an adult, he changed his name from Teddy Landrum and nod to his German heritage. So, yeah, people who change their names tend to be much more high, high in the personality trait of neuroticism, which means enjoying feeling negative feelings. So he traveled to Virginia for the 2017 Unite the White March. He was among the tiki torch-carrying white supremacists who paraded through the city chanting, Jews will not replace us. Here he is seen in the far right in a black t-shirt. Right, counter-protester Heather Heyer was, was killed. Uh, Von Newcomb was among a group of white supremacists who beat a black man almost to death. He told his local newspaper that he supported Donald Trump. He adopted the white supremacist worldview that whites are now being disadvantaged. Everybody can uh, make a very good claim to being disadvantaged. I mean, I can make claims to being disadvantaged. So I'd like to think that I don't uh, tend to resonate with grievance and, and resentment. But when I you know, think about how my life is being crushed, say, by my addictive tendencies or my life is being crushed by my under-earning tendencies or how my life has been crushed by the vegetarian diet that I was raised with. So I had a lifetime of poor health until about 20 months ago. 
So he says, I don't mind sh showing solidarity with white people. You have to pick your side. You have to throw your support behind the army that is fighting for you. Said that his wife, who did not attend the Charlottesville rally, was more hardcore and further to the right than he was. Politics is violence, and women shouldn't be involved in violence, he said. They should leave that to the people who do violence best, which are the men. Something would have happened to me, that would be rather bad. But if something would happen to both of us, that would be catastrophic for our children. So, I mean, he lived in a beautiful Missouri home with his wife and five kids. Let's get back to looking at this article here by Colin Liddell. Well, when he says Jews will not replace us, Colin Liddell says it looks like what the Jews couldn't do, Von Newcomb did himself. There has been a growing toll on those mixed up in the movement that Richard Spencer led in 2015, 2016, 2017, with several young alt-riders taking their lives. Since the civil case for damages launched against Richard Spencer, several other participants at Charlottesville, former alt-right leaders, worked hard on Twitter to distance himself from the movement and make amends for his past mistakes. Okay, I'm not aware of Richard putting that much effort into uh, making amends for his past mistakes. I'm unaware of that. He seems to be quite circumspect at taking much responsibility for his past mistakes. I, I'm just not aware of him putting much effort into making amends to people he's harmed. I mean, hundreds of people are worse off because they encountered Richard Spencer. So what exactly is he doing to make amends for this? Recent months, Richard has famously supported Joe Biden, NATO, and Ukraine's struggle to defend itself against Putin's invasion. And uh, Sargon of Akkad a.k.a. Carl Benjamin tweets, Hogwarts legacy is basically a swag test. If you play it, you have swag. If you're too cowardly to play it because you're worried you're going to get bullied by a bunch of crazed trans lunatics, you have no swag. Richard Spencer says, Carl, if you're over the age of 13 and playing a Harry Potter video game, you're officially a massive dork. One can only imagine, writes Colin Liddell, how demoralizing this U-turn must have been for Richard Spencer's former fans. 2021, Cameron Padgett, a student who organized speaking events by Richard Spencer at several universities, killed himself at age 33. Just last year, Martin Rojas, another Richard Spencer alt-right foot soldier, reportedly killed himself as well. Remember, kids, do not get involved in the emotional roller coaster of dissident politics unless you are tough enough to take the inevitable knocks and bruises. So a lot of people think that they're tough enough to take the inevitable you know, bruises that come from participating in alt-right politics. When push comes to shove, it doesn't seem to work out that way. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. East Palestine, Ohio, sits directly on the border of Pennsylvania. It's just feet away. So anything significant that happens there in East Palestine, say a toxic mushroom cloud rising thousands of feet over the town, is certain to affect the state next door. And that's why three days after a train derailed there, 
spilling a great volume of dangerous chemicals onto the ground and into the water, Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, held a press conference about it. Shapiro announced that authorities had decided to set those chemicals on fire. And that was a very good thing. No one should be unduly alarmed. The burning of these chemicals, Shapiro said, had gone, quote, as planned. Officials on the scene, meanwhile, declared the burn, quote, perfect. Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, agreed with all of this. The people in charge, the railroad's engineers and the state officials overseeing them had everything under control. So two days later, evacuation orders for residents were officially lifted, both in East Palestine and over the border in Pennsylvania. That was last week. In the subsequent days, a lot of people have wondered out loud, was it really a wise decision to light thousands of gallons of vinyl chloride on fire, releasing a World War I-era bioweapon into the air over a populated area? Was that a good call? And was it really safe two days later for people to go back to their homes? And if it was safe, how do we know that? Is anyone in charge actually monitoring with any accuracy the level of deadly chemicals in the air, ground, and water in and around East Palestine? Well, no, apparently nobody is. And that's highly upsetting when you think about it. Talk about a failure at all levels. The first duty of government is to protect its citizens. So it's bad. And it's very bad news for reckless politicians like Josh Shapiro and Mike DeWine, who may have helped make this disaster much worse. So tonight, both DeWine and Shapiro are desperately trying to revise their previous statements about the so-called controlled burn. Both have now decided that the toxic mushroom cloud over East Palestine, the one they signed off on and endorsed on television, was actually a bad thing. It didn't go as planned. It wasn't perfect. And both governors have now identified the villain here, not as themselves, no, of course not, but as the railroad, Norfolk Southern. Both are considering lawsuits against the company. In an act of amazingly brazen butt covering, Josh Shapiro even wrote a letter to the White House and the Transportation Department claiming that Norfolk Southern was, quote, unwilling to explore or articulate alternative courses of action to their proposed vent and burn. It was very obvious, he says, that there was probably a, quote, safer all overall approach for first responders, residents and the environment. That was very obvious. He just never said anything about it. It's remarkable. And for the record, we are not defending Norfolk Southern here. We're only pointing out that Norfolk Southern had the strong endorsement of Josh Shapiro and Mike DeWine when it set those chemicals on fire and caused the mushroom cloud. And by the way, the Biden administration endorsed it, too. According to Pete Buttigieg, Biden officials were on the scene. Yet somehow they never said a word about the mushroom cloud until pictures of it evoked outrage on social media. And of course they didn't. They didn't even notice. It had nothing to do with equity or climate change. East Palestine is a poor white town that voted for Trump. So honestly, who cares? No one in the Biden. Okay, so if you've seen the, the movie White Noise, all right, it's on Netflix. It's based on a famous Dom DeLillo novel. It's all about a scholar of Hitler and his, his you know, rising academic stardom. And then this toxic airborne event you know, hits near his home. And that takes up much of the movie, so it's uh, white noise. All right. I just uh, learned about some awful, awful racism going on in this country. I want to do everything I can to fight it. Guys, the, the racist idea that changed American education. Pretty upsetting stuff here.
The Racist Idea That Changed American Education. Written by Matt Barnum for the Highlight by Vox. Narrated by Jonathan Davis. Almost exactly 50 years ago, Alex Rodriguez got his 15 minutes of fame when he was in sixth grade. Now 61, Rodriguez recalls when news media swarmed his family's small home in West San Antonio in 1973. There was everybody and their grandmas. Okay, this is not Alex Rodriguez, the baseball player. This is just a Joe Sixpack, Alex Rodriguez. As far as reporters all over the place, he said. At the school, at the house, at the neighborhood. They were just going crazy. The TV crews had cameras, he recalls, that were bigger than a bazooka. In a way, the reporters were there because of him. In 1968, his father, Demetrio, had sued the state of Texas for underfunding his son's school district, which was predominantly made up of low-income and Mexican-American families. Alex recalls the third floor of his elementary school being condemned. When it rained, water would pour down the stairs. Okay, so should uh, all schools just be funded equally? Is that essential? And I I would suspect that uh, more funding would lead to better educational results, but does that correlate highly or to an insignificant degree? Right? Will people... A sacrifice for outsiders, or will they be, you know, more at ease with paying high rates of, of tax if it goes to helping their own community? What about groups who habitually underperform and so take far more in government, you know, welfare payments than they ever produce in, you know, tax receipts? Just uh, from from my understanding of the literature, yes, spending more on education can help but it doesn't correlate very highly all right the the bang for your buck with educational spending from my understanding of the scholarly literature is rather modest three or four students shared one textbook the lawsuit filed by rodriguez and a number of other parents remarkably had reached the supreme court Civil rights groups were hoping, and some reporters expecting it to be, the Brown versus Board of Education of the 1970s, as a front-page story in the Wall Street Journal put it. Okay, Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954 Supreme Court decision that uh, ruled segregated educational facilities illegal. So if you just leave people alone, they tend to segregate not not 100%, but there definitely seems to be a fairly strong drift towards segregation. Look at where people like to worship, all right? I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist in, in Southern California. There are Filipino Seventh-day Adventist churches. There are Korean Seventh-day Adventist churches. There are Chinese Seventh-day Adventist churches. There are Mexican Seventh-day Adventist churches. There are, you know, black Seventh-day Adventist churches. Right, so people overwhelmingly prefer to self-segregate when they're left alone. Brown versus the Board of Education says we cannot leave people alone. We must hector them. We must bully them. We must use the full force of the law to deny them their own natural inclinations towards segregation. But as the case wound its way through federal court, a nascent counter-idea was blossoming. 
Maybe, an influential cadre of social scientists claimed, it didn't matter how much money school spent. In fact, maybe... Nascent. I, I thought thought nascent meant, meant new. Is it really a, a new idea that educational attainment isn't, you know, primarily a matter of, of spending? So, yes, nascent. Nascent. I mean, it's just coming into existence. No. The, the idea that uh, educational spending is not going to be the primary factor in how large groups of people uh, learn. Right? That's not nascent. Th that idea has been around for a long, long time. Right? There's nothing nascent about it. To be on the right is to understand hierarchy, is to be at ease with different groups having different gifts. And to be on the left is to think, oh, you know, these new innovative ways that we have for organizing things, that they're better, that we can overturn thousands of years of tradition, we can try new things, and hey, if we just spend enough money. So right now, currently, pretty much all public school districts in, in a state get, you know, fairly equal amounts of, of funding. And yet, educational attainment by groups is just as stark as it was in the bad old days prior to Brown versus the Board of Education. How come, despite spending trillions of dollars to uplift low-achieving groups, that that hasn't happened? The needle has not moved despite spending trillions of dollars. Why? Schools weren't actually a key factor in what students learned. Maybe most insidiously. Yeah, maybe schools aren't the, the key, key factors because we spent trillions of dollars subsidizing low-achieving groups without significantly increasing their scores. So two very low-achieving groups in Los Angeles, for example, 80% of the members of these low-achieving groups would fail to graduate from high school if we maintained traditional academic standards. And so despite the spending of billions of dollars, 80% of these groups would fail to, to graduate from, from high school. So despite spending trillions of dollars, right, we haven't budged the needle in achievement by low-achieving groups. That says to me that how much you spend on education is not the prime factor in how much kids learn. And as you listen to this article, you'll notice that they never struggle with that question. Is school spending the primary determinant of how much kids learn? That never comes up, right? Instead, they, they want to demolish straw men, which is, in this case, the, the argument that uh, spending on education for poor kids does absolutely nothing, right? Anyone who says that uh, spending on education for poor kids does absolutely nothing, right, that's obviously an absurd position. But the question is, how important, how much does spending on public education correlate with educational results? And that, another basic question they don't really wrestle with either. Poor children of color weren't likely to succeed in school, no matter how well-funded their schools. So why is it only poor children of color? What about poor children who suffer from lacking color or what about Asians? There are plenty of poor Asians, and not Asians, people of color, and yet poor Asians from 
originally Japan, Korea, China, have done incredibly well in America's educational system. This idea was spreading, appearing in academic journals and publications like The Atlantic and The Washington Post. A New York Times news article from 1970 included this startling line. In the case of a slum child, it read, citing supposedly cutting-edge research, his chances of learning to read were quite limited, even though large amounts of money might be devoted... Okay, we spent trillions of dollars trying to educate slum children. So what have been the results? You know, how well ha has that worked out for us? Right? Have we managed to tap into you know, this huge reservoir of unexploited scientific talent? Uh, generally speaking, no. That's not what's happened. People tend to achieve according to the mid-level results between their mother and father, right? So good-looking parents tend to have good-looking kids. Musically gifted parents tend to have musically gifted children. Athletically gifted parents tend to have athletically gifted children. Smart parents tend to have smart children. ...to his education. Fifty years ago this year, the Supreme Court cited some of that same research to rule against the Rodriguez family. The racist notion that children in poverty could not benefit from additional or even equal resources. Who says that they could not benefit at all? Right, that's obviously an absurd position. Right, the, the normal, reasonable, respectable, if you had to steel man the argument, is how much would they benefit from additional resources? So if you spend $100 to get, you know, one extra dollar in, in tax base return, spending $100 to get an extra dollar, that's obviously a bad investment. So what is the investment payoff for spending additional trillions of dollars educating slum children above and beyond the trillions of dollars that we have spent so far, right? That's a normal adult question to ask, one that this Vox author, Matt Barnum, does not answer. May well have influenced the court's decision. The poor people have lost again, not only in Texas, but in the United States, because we definitely need changes in the educational system. So poor people have lost again. So if they don't get more subsidies, they're losing again. I mean, what if we gave you a million dollars, right? Do you think you could do some good things with it? What if we spent $300,000 on you, right? Are you losing because the government is not going to spend an extra $300,000 on you or on you or on you or on me? Right? If the government gave me $300,000, I could do great things with it. So this idea that despite trillions of dollars in social welfare spending to try to close the gap, the, the racial gap in educational test results, that if we only spent a, tr you know, a few trillion dollars more above and beyond what we've already spent, that that would just revolutionize lives, seems to me to be like a tad, tad optimistic. The media soon left, and Alex went back to the same underfunded school. It was famous for a day or two, then that was it, he says now. Admittedly, the legal and practical... 
All right, that's how it is for everyone who captures news media attention. All right, I was interviewed 50, 100 times. I was interviewed by, uh, what, ABC News, uh, Fox, uh, New York Times, LA Times, Entertainment Tonight, 60 Minutes, all right? And then the media left. They're left. Where are they? I've just been, you know, left on my own two feet. It's like, it reminds me of all those women who pose for Playboy, and then it irks them, it bothers them, it fills them with resentment and rage. Like, why doesn't Playboy then take care of them for the rest of their lives? They got naked for one, you know, Playboy layout, and then they're shocked, they're appalled, they're horrified, they're disappointed, they're let down, they're deeply hurt, they're left feeling vulnerable and used and exploited because then Playboy doesn't automatically take care of them for the rest of their lives. So someone who commands news media attention because a major lawsuit was filed on his behalf, not because these individuals had anything extraordinary about them, but they were used by political and educational activists to you know, try to get something done. Right? There's nothing extraordinary about these particular individuals who suddenly got a, a ton of news media attention. 40, have you burned through $300,000 quite a few times? Well, I have never been a, a big, big spender. So I have I have lived between, uh, between $500 and $1,000 a week. Those have been basically my, my living expenses since 1995. So 1995 to... I don't know, 2005, 2010, I was living pretty much around $500, $600 a week. Uh, the last, last five years, I've, my living expenses probably around $8,000 a week. I think that's a big spender. I just took a you know, three-month holiday in Australia. So in terms of like lost earnings and expenses, so I was probably out $9,000 for, for taking that, that three-month trip. The year before, I took two months off. I was out about $6,000 for, for that trip. don't think I'm a particularly big spender. Merits of the court's 1973 decision in San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez are complex and up for legitimate debate. In the long run, the ruling was not the devastating blow to funding equality efforts that many advocates feared. Funding gaps due to property taxes have narrowed or fully closed, in part because state courts stepped in after the Supreme Court stepped aside. But that often took decades, and the decision had a lasting impact. It left multiple generations of low-income children, like Alex Rodriguez, in schools with lesser funding. This is particularly troubling because more... Re so you can always think of a reason why you have been victimized. But uh, that's not a particularly effective tool for going through life. It doesn't make you happier. It doesn't make you more effective. So what uh, does make you more effective is having a sense of gratitude for the good things that have come your way. All right, this family, these kids, all right, who initiated this lawsuit, they were better off materially, educationally, than 99.9% .9 of people who ever lived. 
and yet they have this resentment, right? They're better off than 99.9% of people who ever lived, and yet they're filled with resentment. You can always think of you know, reasons to be resentful. Frugality is the way, says the chat. Well, I particularly value my time, right? I love to have as much time as possible to pursue doing the things that I love to do, such as reading and walking and hanging out with friends and seeing my family and talking to you and making uh, podcasts, all right? Th those are some of the things that I love to do. So I try to carve out an absolute maximum amount of time to do the things that I love to do. And in exchange for that maximum of freedom, you know, I'm willing to give up a significant amount of income and, you know, all sorts of other components of, of a normal life. But just the, the sheer gall of people who have, have it better off than 99.9% .9 of people who have ever lived and yet are just, you know, complaining that their school district only gets 80% of the funding of, you know, some rich school district, which is filled with people who pay considerably more in taxes than they ever take out in government services, as opposed to this district, which is dominated by people who take out far more in government services than they ever pay in in taxes. 40. Do you find yourself randomly talking to the big cheese and expressing your gratitude? No, I don't talk a lot to God. So I, I tend to have a fairly distant relationship with God, just as I had a fairly distant relationship with my, my father. And you know, writing out what you're grateful for doesn't, generally speaking, tend to do much good, even though that's, that's a practice that I've, I've adopted for years and years and years. But upon further research, I'm realizing it doesn't really do that much good. What's much more effective exercise is to write out, you know, what would have happened if certain things hadn't gone, gone your way. Just like, uh, well, what was that George Bailey movie, It's a It's Wonderful Life, where he was shown what his town would look like if he never existed. So think about all the, the great things that have happened to you and how easily they could have not happened, right? The opportunities that I've received that could have easily not happened or, you know, how close I, I got to disaster and, and uh, I didn't actually, you know, d destroy myself or destroy other people. So that kind of attention, like recognizing the, the bounties in your life and, your good fortune rather than just some rote recitation of, of gratitude tends to help you out. And so if I want to get the most visceral, compelling, you know, real experience of God, I get that in 12-step programs. It's like meeting God with skin on when I get to hear from other people and share, share my own story, how we've all survived the 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 dangers and the destructiveness of, of addiction. That often took decades, and the decision had a lasting impact. It left multiple generations of low-income children, like Alex Rodriguez, in schools with lesser funding. This is particularly troubling because... Schools with lesser funding, right? They, they got more funding, more opportunities, they're materially better off than 99.9% .9 of people who ever lived. And yet the, the focus here in this article and in this type of thinking is, you know, how they've been screwed over by the system, right? We can all think of ways that we've been screwed over. And thinking about that tends to raise your levels of resentment, 
tends to make you less happy and makes you less effective at life. And you see reality less clearly than if you go through life with an attitude of gratitude. Because more recent evidence has found a meaningful link between spending and student success. Still, question isn't if there is any kind of link. The question is how big is the link, right? Are there other more effective ways of spending money? And you notice this article doesn't really want to delve into exactly how big is the correlation, how big is the link between spending and educational results. Well, today, thanks to the Rodriguez case, the Constitution does not protect the right to an education. A recent effort by students in Detroit to garner some federal right to quality, adequately funded schools failed. For half a century, the decision has effectively closed federal courts to students and families seeking a better education. On a Thursday morning in May 1968, hundreds of students walked out of Edgewood High School on the west side of San Antonio. They held signs. Every student in America does... Hey, this is library. All right. Do you think that these kids who, who walked out because... Their, their school district only gets 80% of the funding of some big, rich school district. Do you think we're talking about future nuclear scientists, rocket scientists, you know, fantastic doctors, you know, innovative entrepreneurs here? No, these are you know, lazy, easily led, deluded kids focusing on resentment. I suspect that they will go on to lives where they consume far more in government resources than they pay in with their taxes. Serves a great education. Where is ours? We want a gym, not a barn. Better. Oh, that's the education they want. They want a gym. They want a better gym. They want more funding for a better gymnasium. Wow, sounds like some serious scholars here. Better library, better teachers, better schools. They marched to the superintendent's office with a list of demands. It was a sign of the civil rights-infused times, the era of rising expectations among minority groups like the Mexican-American young... Any thoughts on co-ed versus single sex? So my general presumption is that generally speaking, most people, most of the time, are better off hanging out with members of their own sex, uh, particularly teenagers. I think generally speaking, would probably be better off going to a single-sex school. But uh, I had co-ed education. Don't have any complaints about having a co-education. But uh, it seems to me that uh, you'd be able to concentrate much better on your schooling if there weren't members of the opposite sex around. ...of the city, as the local San Antonio Express put it. A number of parents had joined in the protest and soon organized the Edgewood Concerned Parents Association. When I heard kids saying they didn't think they could make it in college because of their high school education, then that's when I decided it was time to do something, one parent said. Demetrio Rodriguez, a sheet metal worker, military veteran, and then a father of three young boys, was among those frustrated parents. The group initially targeted their ire at district officials, concerned that they were self-dealing or hoarding money. But then they met with a local lawyer, Arthur Gotchman, who pointed out that the district got dramatically less funding than others in the area. Maybe the school's problems stemmed not from mismanagement of money, but a lack of it. 
Since the advent of public education in America, property taxes had been school's biggest source of funding. And because prop- So o- overall, American schools are funded, you know, better than almost other, all other first world schools. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Welcome to the free <laughs> show. Hi, Luke. Blessings. First time, frequent, frequent caller. Blessings. Mega, Blessings mega, to you. mega dittos. <laughs> dittos. Back at you, man. What is it? Um, Gigadittos to you, dude. Bro, thank you. I'm not worthy. Uh, uh, well, yeah, you know, hearing this stuff, um, it just puts me back in, with some conversations I've had with people over the years. And now it's completely in context. And before it was always mysterious. And now, knowing what I know now, post Red Pill, it's so blatantly obvious and and it's like uh we're eventually going to have to be able to talk about this stuff frankly and by frankly you mean recognizing that different groups have different gifts yeah yeah and what that all means and how it explains the world rather you know uh, it's such a such a simple phrase isn't it but it's just absolutely you know useful for understanding reality just like uh, marginalized groups attract marginalized people go ahead yeah yeah you're right you're right you know um you know i've been doing some thinking you know be careful so last time we spoke we were sort of hypothesizing about you having a sort of am radio talk show that that aired over the pacific northwest yes right we were sort of Planning that out gave me get out seeing how it would work. And uh, so uh, I've been doing a little uh, doing a little intellectual heavy lifting in my off time. And I, I wanted to share the fruit fruit of that. Fruit experience. of the loom. The fruit of yeah. the loom. Yeah, fruit of the loom that is my my cranium. Um so you know, you know, <laughs> you know when uh, you're listening to the radio, that commercial radio. And there's an ad. And then in between the ad, there's like this reintroduction to the promo into the programming. So yeah. here's Sean Hannity. You know, there's that little thing that transitions you from, you know, advertisement back into content, right? And often this this voice they call the voice of God. You aware of this term? Yes. It's always that deep resonant cinematic voice that is super authoritative like here's luke ford you know boom and then then you continue with the content right so and often these are some sort of one-liner jokes done in the voice of god on your more cheeky radio stations it'll be like a one-liner kind of joke or something a little bit tongue-in-cheek right Yes. There's a range of these. So I, I've been composing these for you. Oh, some bumpers. Some bumpers. bumpers. Yes. Excellent. They're called bumpers. <laughs> so now you have to, uh, so I was hoping I could share some with you. Now, I, I've, I actually written them down, but I'm not in front of my computer, so I'm going to have to try and do them from memory. But I had at least 10 written down, but I don't know if I can recall all of them. So I'll just go with a few that come to mind. Okay. Okay. Is it? I mean, is this a good use of program time? I don't want to yes. force you into this. Uh, this I, I mean, I excerpt. hate to talk about myself, but. 
Okay, so so try to imagine that you're driving uh, sort of like on a desolate plain of American highway in the Pacific Northwest. And this is what you would hear, right? So yeah. that your audience is like a truck driver hauling wood or something or hauling logs or... Hauling ass. Hauling ass, you know. So this is... And you also have to remember that your competition, right? The competition in this market are talk shows that are talking about Bigfoot. Yeah. Right? So UFOs. <laughs> and Bigfoot. So that's sort of the context that we're dealing with. So I think that's important. Uh, I guess in, in comedic terms, this would be called the setup, right? Yeah. So I'm giving you a little setup. So, all right, here's one. Here's what comes to mind. You're hauling wood, but he's got Talmud. It's Luke Ford. It's Luke Ford, right? So you think that one's good? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, (laughs) Okay. His yarmulke covers all of Yakima. It's Luke Ford. (laughs) All right. So there's that one. Um, he's met Bigfoot, and Bigfoot's gay. Here's Luke. Missed <laughs> <laughs> um, Luke? Don't worry. He's coming back here a thousand times if he has to. <laughs> <laughs> You think that would go over well? And, they uh, don't do this to me. <laughs> they don't do this to Luke. Yeah. They don't do this to us. Yeah. Let's, let's see. Um, have you even read John Locke? <laughs> yeah. I have some more. I'll call him some more when I, when I look at my notes. But I've been jotting these down. Um, uh, some of them are quite good. but The um, ultimate qu- answer to the eucalyptus question. <laughs> yeah, it's Luke. See, now, if, I think if you started writing these yourself, Luke, I think this would be the impetus, the catalyst to get you eventually moving those wheels towards getting you on sort of terrestrial radio. You think that's, A, is yeah. it desirable, and B, is it possible? Yeah, know? yes, and yes. Uh, the last line of defense against <laughs> invasive species, the Luke Ford show. <laughs> yeah. Pond scum doesn't, what is it? Uh, we could do one with pond scum. Because pond scum doesn't allow any competitors. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got we to gotta do something about subspecies. Don't, oh, uh, do, you don't, do you not care about outgroups? Well, then the <laughs> yeah, Luke Ford show is for you. <laughs> that's one, that was one of them, actually. It was, he doesn't care about outgroups. And neither should you. (laughs) (laughs) So you have such a rich mind that you could uh, draw from. So it'd be so funny to just see a look on someone's face, you know, driving in a a truck, (laughs) standing and having that come up here. (laughs) The ultimate friend friend enemy distinction, the Luke Ford show. (laughs) Yeah. Or how about this one? He used to work in porn. Now you can get him on the horn. Who decides the state of exception? 
Luke Ford does. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. So, what about this news? Am I supposed to like take this seriously, Luke? All this UFO stuff. Uh, you can take it's it seriously. Ridiculous. The people yearn for a more magical and enchanted world. Yeah, but this just seems so in your face, stupid. You know, like, uh, yeah, are we really that to the point? Is this is this is this the decline of of IQ that Ed Dutton has been prophesizing? Is it now here? I mean, I, I think it is here, but I don't think that's what's going on because we did the same thing when Sputnik launched in the 1950s. Right, America went crazy when Russians launched the first satellite that orbited the Earth, and they thought that America was in peril. And there was like a major, you know, change in the American ethos and the American educational system, even though America wasn't imperiled because the Russians first launched a satellite. So I think people viscerally feel something when when China sends a balloon overhead. It's, it's probably a normal, natural, understandable response that, hey, the, you know, the country's in peril. So, so you think there's real fear associated with this, or it's, just, it's not completely media-driven? Oh, I think it's real. No, I mean, everyone, you know, can viscerally, can viscerally relate to the, you know, everyone with an IQ under 120 can viscerally relate to the you know, Chinese balloon story. I think that's very real. I, I don't think... This is a media creation. This is very much an ordinary American reaction. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Because um, I, I, I was in the camp. I'm totally I'm probably still in the camp that it is just a complete concoction. I mean, doesn't the government lose credibility? You know, doesn't the government sort of have to keep the sort of upper end of the IQ spectrum engaged meaningfully and doesn't that doesn't it, that kind of doesn't like this story just kind of estrange people uh from the government i really can't i really can't even take i can't even take them seriously now it just seems like a, everyone's joking now no no i mean i think high iq people have you know more than enough to keep themselves occupied so they don't need the government to Occupy that. No, I think this is a genuine bottom-up fascination with the Chinese balloon. I don't think it is at all a, a top-down artifice. Hmm. Just like Sputnik. Uh, I mean, America went it, crazy uh, with, with Sputnik. Do you think this is the first balloon that's floated over American airspace, or is this just... No, but it's the first one that's captured our attention. Yeah, and so that's what I mean. Like, if this, it, it's probably an everyday occurrence. It's just now we choose to pay attention to it. So it seems like crisis. Well, I don't think people saw them before. So I think this is the first time that a, you know, a, a sufficient mm. number of people saw one, and and were perturbed. So it, mm. it was popular reaction that forced the Biden administration to act and then overact. Now we've shot mm. down, you know, three harmless objects, probably a weather balloon and, you know, some other harmless things because popular reaction to this Chinese balloon just sitting over Montana, I think, forced the Biden administration's hand. So we're not nearly as autonomous as, as we think we, we are because if, if a sufficient pressure gets put on us, you know, we'll start doing all sorts of things that are that we would rather not. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like they have to... 
but it sort of makes it seem like because it's they've come in such quick succession that it makes it seem like a Chinese invasion, you know. It makes yeah. it seem like China's actually making belligerent moves against the United States, which I don't believe is the case. I don't know. Uh, I've it's checked e- out on the news. It's easy to get people riled up about outgroups. Mm. Yeah, the Luke Roof Ford law comes comes into play once again. So, but the other real story is like this train derailment explosion, and now there's one in Arizona. It's just like, what's going? Why do these things sort of come in clusters like this? It's just so absolutely weird. Well, apparently uh, there have been like a hundred this year alone. I mean, this is just the most severe. But apparently, train derailments are increasingly common, and it looks like we have people working to subvert our infrastructure and to impurify our vital fluids. <laughs> yeah. Now, so, wait, so you're saying there's been a hundred derailments this year already? If or... I recall correctly from okay. Tucker's show last night. But most are very innocuous, right? But this one happened to be carrying chemicals and therefore it yeah. wasn't innocuous. Well, none of them are innocuous, but uh, this seems to be the most severe yet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then there's, you know, potential, like, you know, Tucker was talking about the governor. Was it the governor's decision to light it on fire? And is he just over-politicizing this? I mean, I could see, easily see... Someone saying, "What should we do?" You know, government governor goes to the guy at the rail at the at the was it Southern Pacific um, Union Southern, and say, "What do we do?" And he says, "Ah, we should light it on fire." And he's like, "Okay, <laughs> light it on fire." It's not like the governor has like this crystal clear insight into what to do in the event of a. Chemical yeah, yeah. Film, I mean, you know? it, it seems like a terrible decision. It does. It does. In retrospect, obviously, it seems like a terrible decision. But in the moment, it like, felt felt good at the might, moment. I mean, I well, love lighting things on fire. I don't know about you. No, but it might have seemed like the rational thing to do, right? I, I'm not blaming the guy. I'm not. I'm not trying to uh, exonerate this guy. I'm just trying to say, like, I can see it's like. Observers have, you're either an actor in a situation or you're an observer, right? And an observer always has this beautiful 2020 perfect insight after the fact, right? After all the experts have weighed in, they sort of imagine themselves being armed with that same knowledge in the present moment when the event happened. Right. So like they, people criticize like Elon Musk for making this business decision or that business decision. And then they, they and, it, and if it turns out to be the wrong decision, they say, well, he's stupid. Right. Well, the fact is, Elon Musk probably made the best decision he could make with the information that he had at the time. Right. And, but we all put ourselves in the position of being in complete command of all the facts at every given moment and it's only through idiocy idiocy that we disregard that perfect information do you see what i'm trying to say yeah yeah no i agree with you i think people generally speaking do what they believe to be best 
Right. 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 And I like, um, like you, I've made stupid decisions. You've made stupid no, decisions. Really? Yeah. yeah. yeah you yeah. know, and like, and, it, and it's just like this carpet, this weird sort of schadenfreude and petulance that the average news consumer has uh, that wants to just kind of, you know, finger wag and, and, and condemn somebody for uh, a situation that which they would have done probably no better. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's just human nature. It's just amusing to watch. So anyway, I wasn't like, uh, I wasn't like brimming with insights. I was just checking in, dude. Blessings, man. Great to hear from you. <laughs> okay. Blessings. Blessings. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be listening in rapt attention. Okay. Thanks, Elliot. Great to talk All to right, you, man. All right. All right. Good night. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Let's get back to this article here from Vox about... Whoa. varied dramatically from place to place. School funding did too. Today, state funding has eclipsed local dollars for schools, reducing or even eliminating gaps in dollars due to property taxes. But disparities still exist in some places. And funding often isn't targeted to the highest need students. Nationally, the correlation between property. Okay, funding often isn't targeted at highest need students. So there are some students who you could spend $1,000 for every dollar you get back in, in return. And then there are other students for whom you can spend one extra dollar and get $1,000 back in return. So what do you think is a better investment? Should we spend you know, an extra $100 on students who will only, on average, give us back an extra dollar in tax? Or should we spend, say, an extra dollar on those students who can give us back an extra $1,000 in tax receipts? So I'm not so sure that we should be targeting school funds or social welfare at people who are the least likely to repay our generosity. Poverty was not perfect. In some places, especially big cities, expensive property sat next to deep poverty. But the link was strong enough to create large funding gaps between school districts. In 1972, the country's most affluent districts were spending 40% more per student than the highest poverty districts. The San Antonio area was a perfect example. Alamo Heights, an affluent northern part of the city, which had kept black and Hispanic residents out through racially restrictive covenants, had nearly 10 times the taxable property value as the Edgewood School District, which served... Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. How could this racist district that kept out blacks and Latinos, how did it become so prosperous? I, I mean, I thought you know, racism was anti-prosperity. It was, you know, anti-excellence. I, I don't understand how that these districts that practice you know, racism then go on to be highly successful Right, economically prosperous, high social cohesion, high social trust. I thought racism was a bad thing that led to terrible results. Now you're telling me that these districts that practice racism 
received excellent results. This is blowing my mind. This is turning upside down my whole understanding of reality. I thought if you did racist things that you would be punished, that you were opposing reality, that you were you were on the wrong side of history. Now this this left-wing article is telling me that these racist districts went on to prosper, enjoy high social trust, high social cohesion, you know, mega prosperity. Mostly low-income Mexican-American children. The consequences then were preordained, and state and federal funds couldn't make up the gap either. When all the funding was added up in 1968, Edgewood schools received three... Making up the gap. So we've spent trillions of dollars to try to get more equal results for educational returns, and we've made virtually no progress. So I would suggest that being obsessed with egalitarian educational results is as stupid as being obsessed with, say, equal egalitarian sporting results between different groups, all right? Some groups are really good at basketball. Other groups are really good at football. You know, other groups are really good at badminton. $156 per student compared to $594 in Alamo Heights, just a few miles across town. That translated into big differences in what the schools could offer. Teachers in Edgewood were paid much less than those in Alamo Heights. Probably because of that, half of them had only substandard credentials compared to 11% in Alamo Heights, which also had more staff per student. Class sizes in Edgewood were an average of 28 kids. Alamo Heights had a counselor for every 650 students. Edgewood had one for every 3,100. Despite being in southern Texas, just one in three Edgewood classrooms had air conditioning. On July 10th, 1968, with the support of Gotchman, who took the case pro bono, Demetrio Rodriguez and several other San Antonio families filed suit against Texas's school funding system, which they claimed violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution by discriminating against low-income Mexican-American families across the state. I thought, I ain't got nothing to lose, Rodriguez said later. Maybe we can do some good. Okay, so they, they want better teachers. I've got a suggestion for better teachers, right? Do away with affirmative action, right? Make teachers pass basic literacy and numeracy tests. Now, that will make the teaching profession less diverse and also make it more excellent. This article seems to want more educational excellence, right? How about doing away with affirmative action? How about instituting some basic literacy and numeracy testing for teachers if you want excellence with teaching but far from san antonio a small group of social scientists had begun to question the importance of money in public education instead some researchers implied or even stated outright whoa very hurtful laponia says i need a haircut bro i just trim the sides all right i figure i can I can hold off getting a haircut for about for about, you know, a month now, right? I was about to shave it all off, but then I thought, "Oh, let me just get rid of the sideburns and let me just trim the sides." What do you think? I mean, don't you think that's like a, you know, a great job I did? I, I bought myself an extra month before I have to shave everything off. So, you know, I'm very like Century City, very Manhattan up front, 
but I've got like I've got a guys, I've got a mullet. I got a kind of a mullet. I'm all business up front. I'm potty in the back. I'm Century City up front. I'm South Central in the back. And, and you're telling me, you're telling me that that I need a haircut, man. Blame for low student performance lay mostly with low-income families of color themselves. The 1964 Civil Rights Act had included a provision requiring the Federal Office of Education to produce a study on inequality in education. Many assumed it would show the need for more investment in segregated black schools. Two years later, the federal government released the results, which stunned many educators and policymakers. The massive analysis of close to 600,000 students showed large gaps in test scores between black and white students, but didn't find much evidence that better schools or more funding led to higher test scores. Lagging student achievement, lead researcher James Coleman concluded, was mostly due to the home and the cultural influences immediately surrounding. Look. Look, we, we, we need to talk about my hair. So the feedback feedback I get is that for every one person who wants me to shave my head, there are like 20 who prefer me with, you know, medium to, to long hair. So, Laponius, you are a voice in the wilderness. Like the consensus is overwhelming. I mean, the people have spoken. They prefer me with hair rather than, you know, just completely shorn off and, you know, looking like a, a child rather than schools or money. The study produced the astounding proposition that the quality of the schools has only a trifling relation to achievement, wrote politician and Harvard professor Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who evangelized the Coleman Report as it came to be known in speeches and articles. Coleman's data set was unprecedented. But his methods for teasing out the impacts of funding on student outcomes were crude. He couldn't follow individual student progress over time or isolate the effect of it. Okay, this article is incredibly crude, right? It doesn't even ask, let alone answer any of the basic questions I was throwing out there, such as, yeah, what is the correlation between educational spending and attainment? So what do we get if we spend an extra million, extra billion, an extra trillion on the education for slum kids, right? So this article seems rather crude, yet it's quite happy to hammer, you know, real researchers as crude. Fusion of funding. Coleman's analysis was not only wrong, but generated misunderstandings that remain sadly pervasive today wrote Stanford professor Caroline Hoxby in a 2016 retrospective. Nevertheless, the report soon picked up widespread attention, discussed at congressional hearings, written about in newspapers and magazines, and poured over by academics. It also drew notice because it came soon after the 1965 passage of Title I the first major federal education funding stream and a key piece of Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. Coleman's conclusion that families mattered more than schools. So how has the uh, war, war on poverty turned out? Well, in between the, the two extremes, the American spending on, on poor people has helped out the quality of life for America's poor people. 
but obviously you can't take away most of their problems because most of their problems are their own creation. So yeah, we can spend more on schooling for poor kids. We can spend more on trying to take care of poor people and we can help people, right? We can help the most vulnerable. We can help the, the poorest. We can help the, the least intelligent, right? So I'm in between the two extremes. One extreme says, oh, no matter what you spend on the poor, no matter what you spend on the vulnerable, right? It's not going to shift the needle. Yeah, you can definitely shift the needle. So I guess I'm with liberals there. You can shift the needle with poor people if you spend enough money. And with with the right in recognizing that uh, hierarchy and group differences are just an inherent part of life, I don't uh, rebel against that possibility. Though I recognize a significant role for government and for society to try to make life as good as possible for our fellow citizens. Bolster another high-profile report of the era. The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, written by Moynihan and published in 1965. This controversial analysis claimed that a rise in single parenthood was at the heart of a tangle of pathology among black families. Moynihan said the point of the report was to spur government action to support low-income black households. But some civil rights leaders condemned the report as shifting the blame for racial inequality onto black people. In 1969, this implication became explicit in an academic article published. Look, either the research is correct or it's it's not correct, right? Uh, moralizing about the research just does not seem terribly important to me, right? I, I kind of get tired of the the rhetoricians and you know the people just making polemical arguments. I, I just want to know what works and what is true. University of California Berkeley psychologist Arthur Jensen. He claimed that IQ is nearly fixed at birth and that therefore... Well, virtually everyone who studies the topic will tell you that IQ is virtually fixed at birth, right? So that's either true or it's not true. And from my understanding of the evidence is the evidence overwhelmingly says it's true. So you may not like it, it may seem immoral to you. Reality may seem racist, ageist, sexist, homophobic, Islamophobic, bigoted, right? Reality may be that way, but reality is, and we have to adapt to reality. Funding for poor and black children was doomed to fail because of what he viewed as their genetically low intelligence. This flagrantly racist argument was a sensation, garnering widespread Okay, so either this racist argument is true or it is false. That's what's important, not whether or not the argument is racist. Press coverage. Can Negroes learn the way whites do? Was the headline in U.S. News. Born dumb followed Newsweek. Intelligence. Is there a racial difference? Asked Time magazine. The New York Times magazine sympathetically profiled Jensen, describing his severely trying moments of being accused of racism. This was a sign of the Times, too. The heady optimism that the federal government could quickly end poverty and educational inequality had waned. The so so which, which perspective has, has aged better? 
right? That government can eradicate group differences or that uh, group differences are just hardwired and perhaps dominantly genetic, all right? We haven't shifted significantly group differences from the 1950s till today, even though the United States has spent trillions of dollars trying to do so. So this bad perspective that different groups have different gifts, uh, yet it persists and is validated and verified by oceans of data, even though it's racist. That had supported civil rights and Johnson's war on poverty had splintered amid white backlash and the Vietnam War. Riots rippled across American cities. White intelligentsia cast about for explanations for the persistent challenges of poverty, urban. Okay, I've got an explanation for why riots happen in America. Right? I will tell you that America's racial problems are pretty much the same as the world's racial problems. It's just that uh, America has, say, more races and more uh, particular races than, say, other countries. And so we have more of the gifts and more of the problems that come with different groups of people. So if you maintain law and order and you crack down on infractions of law and order and you jail people, who break the law for a long time, you will have a much more peaceful society. But when you dial back on punishing super predators, super predators will be even more predatory. Right? We made significant strides reducing America's crime rate in the 1990s all right, by passing things such as California's three strikes law. Right? You take the 1% of the population that is most responsible for violent crime and other horrible crimes. And once these people commit a horrible crime, you put them away for a very long time, you will crush America's crime rates, right? And you will crush the lawlessness that goes with, you know, this kind of widespread rioting. And racial inequality. Some landed on a convenient age-old answer. The deficiencies of poor people of color. It's not a matter of deficiencies. Right? It's a matter of do different groups have different gifts? Do people who evolved in different areas, largely isolated from the rest of the world, right, develop certain statistically verifiable patterns? Right? It's not a matter of saying this group is bad, this group is good. Right? Different groups evolved to be better or worse adapted to the particular environment that they and their ancestors lived in for hundreds of thousands of years. That's how in 1970 the Times could declare a slum child uneducable. Similarly, a 1970 Wall Street Journal news piece said that Title I funding to help students in poverty had produced negligible results. Lower test scores among children of color could be explained by either genetic or cultural factors, the article claimed. In the introduction to a 1971 cover story on IQ... The editors of The Atlantic claim that Moynihan, Coleman, and Jensen's reports, three landmark social documents, had collectively called into question policy efforts to address racial inequity in education and elsewhere. Well, I know one thing you can do to reduce you know, these out unequal outcomes is that you can take you know, poor kids away from bad neighborhoods and bad parents. Right? But 
that's what we now castigate as the stolen generation, right? These these half-breed kids often, or Native American kids or indigenous Australian kids were taken away from homes where they were getting routinely sexually abused, raped, you know, beaten, right? Brought them into a situation that was much kinder, gentler, nicer to them and read them with skills. And this was castigated as the stolen generations, but it's just that type of government program to take poor kids out of abusive homes and try to rear them in something better, right? That will reduce these inequities. Getting rid of racist laws had not eliminated economic and educational inequalities. Presumably, they wrote, because of internal barriers. A 1973 front-page Washington Post story opened with this analogy. The doctors, you might say, keep telling the parents that their child's case is hopeless, that no amount of money or variety of remedies will add up to a cure. The piece was accompanied by a picture of a black student in a remedial reading class. There were other legitimate reasons to question the efficacy of school spending including a 1969 report from the NAACP concluding that Title I dollars were often being misused. The Coleman report, although methodologically flawed, was among the few empirical examinations on whether more money led to better schools. The problem was that some pundits and researchers had leapt from these early results to write off the impact of schools and funding altogether. A number of black academics and writers tried to combat this fatalist brand of social science. Such studies are a throwback to the... Okay, so you get all these negative pejorative terms about a type of science that you don't like, right? Isn't this anti-science? I mean, fatalist science is either true or it's not true, right? Isn't that what's important, whether it's true or not true? instead of throwing all sorts of pejorative terms at you know scientific investigations, studies, and scientific results that you don't like. I thought we were supposed to be pro-science, guys. How can you be against the science? I'm confused. 19th century theorists who adopted social Darwinism, the survival of the fittest, as a means of bolstering the privileged classes of society, wrote Vernon Jordan in the Chicago Defender, a black newspaper. Now this old and ugly tradition is being revived. But this critique... Wait, they don't put any effort into invalidating on factual and logical grounds why the type of scientific research they disapprove of is wrong. All they do is call it nasty names. Much less attention from journalists and policymakers than the new educational fatalism, which had already migrated up to the White House. Wait, how is this educational fatalism new? Right, this has been a dominant way of thinking for hundreds and hundreds of years. What exactly is so new about it? Later serving as an advisor for President Richard Nixon, Moynihan sent the president an excerpt of Jensen's paper on race and IQ, as well as two later memos that referenced Jensen's claims. In a 1971 memo prompted by the Atlantic article on IQ, Moynihan claimed that psychologists believed that there was a ranking of the major races by intelligence. Asians, Caucasians, and then 
Africans. Moynihan expressed some anguish. Okay, so psychometric results haven't changed in the 50 years since, despite the spending of trillions of dollars. So why exactly is this 1950s, 1960s scientific research wrong? This ...and described the conclusion as not settled. He also recommended Nixon not give up on social programs altogether. Others were more fatalistic. White House advisor Patrick Buchanan, who later mounted bids for president, wrote a memo about the same article, saying it cast doubt on extra education spending. Every study we have shows blacks 15 IQ points below whites on the average, he wrote. During a phone call with Moynihan, Nixon endorsed the idea of a racial hierarchy of intelligence. What was said earlier by Jensen is probably very close to the truth, said Nixon, who appointed four of the justices who, in just a few years, would decide Demetrio Rodriguez's case. But in 1971, three years after filing the lawsuit, Rodriguez still had good reason to be optimistic. In December, he and the other San Antonio... Yeah, he has good reason to be optimistic because he is materially better off. He is socially better off. He is culturally better off than 99.9% of people who ever lived. Right? You have the blessings of living in the United States of America, and, and yet you've got this huge chip on your shoulder that your school district only gets 70% of the funding of the, the affluent school district. Come on, man won a major victory in federal court. The current system of financing public education in Texas discriminates on the basis of wealth. A three-judge panel concluded unanimously. You know what also discriminates on the basis of wealth? Life. You know what also discriminates? Reality. Reality is constantly discriminating. Right? The more you live in reality the more you recognize discrimination all around us. Discrimination is just woven into the universe. Does it mean that there aren't times where you don't do things about it, where you don't try to ameliorate it, even pass laws against it? But this idea that if something is discriminatory, it's ipso facto bad, strikes me as silly. It's like bewailing the laws of gravity. The question of whether more money could improve schools did not even come up in the decision. Texas decided to appeal the ruling to the Supreme Court. The stakes were high, not just in Texas, but beyond. Numerous other lawsuits had been filed against property tax-driven funding schemes across the country. But they were on a collision course with the new social science about the limits of school funding. Okay, so that's overstating the case, right? Denying that spending more money will have zero effect is, is silly. question is, how much of an effect, how much of a correlation? The article was cited in the Texas brief before the Supreme Court. It was possible to argue against the lawsuits based on legitimate questions about funding and outcomes, local control, or the constitutional issues at play. But at least in some cases... Arguments lapsed into fatalism.
In the view of many, a 1971 Time story about the case claimed, the true sources of educational deficiencies are rooted in the more basic inequalities among people, and no amount of reshuffling of tax dollars, however just, is going to change that. Do we as legislators have the responsibility to compensate for inadequate home life? Wondered an Oklahoma state legislator, as quoted by the Times. It was easy to miss, but phrases like inequalities among people and inadequate home life were suggesting that children of color or children in poverty could not be expected to achieve high levels of academic performance. And no, the question was, could these particular kids you know, achieve at an equal rate with other groups? And how effective is it for their own welfare, for their family's welfare, for the community's welfare, for the nation's welfare, to spend trillions of dollars more on public education? Could, could these funds be used more productively elsewhere? Be fruitless to make funding more equal. One civil rights group was so concerned about the school's don't matter narrative that it held a press conference in 1972 to besiege courts not to rely on this research. Such studies amounted to a sophisticated type of backlash to efforts to address inequality. Okay, beseech means, you know, cry, wail, get all emotional, use moral arguments, use emotional arguments. Why not just use logical, factual, and rational arguments to show why the scientific research that you're decrying is wrong? Why, why the need for emotional, moral arguments? Don't you have any factual, empirical, logical arguments? Said Kenneth Clark, a prominent black psychologist whose research was cited in Brown versus Board of Education. No matter. Attorneys defending Texas' school funding scheme had seized on this research. Beyond some minimum, there is reason to believe that there is no relation between expenditures and quality of education, lawyers for the state wrote in their brief before the court. Justice Lewis Powell, whom Nixon had appointed to the Supreme Court in 1971 and who had previously served on the Richmond and Virginia school boards, wrote the majority opinion in San Antonio versus Rodriguez. It was a 5-4 ruling with the four recent Nixon appointees forming the crucial majority block. If it had reached the court a bit earlier, it could have easily gone the other way. Powell concluded it simply wasn't the court's role to meddle with complex funding formulas. Legally, Powell said that poor children and families do not warrant heightened constant. Why not leave this to the political process? If people want you know, this, this funding, let them vote for it. Right, the left supposedly is you know deeply concerned about democracy. Right, our democracy is at threat. Notice there's no concern about democracy in this article. Right, there's no consideration about oh maybe we should allow people to vote for representatives to carry out the policies that they want. No, the the left frequently wants this kind of thing, ipso facto, de jure, de facto, carried out from top down. Just have the U.S. Supreme Court make rulings to force everyone else to go along. Let's take these questions away from the political process. Our society would be better off if we were effectively less democratic. There were fewer and fewer things that we could vote for. We need these questions decided by experts who are on the left. That's the left-wing agenda exposed here.
protection from discrimination, and that education is not a fundamental right. Powell also raised questions about whether money matters, citing Coleman and Moynihan. One of the major sources of controversy concerns the extent to which there is a demonstrable correlation between educational expenditures and the quality of education, wrote Powell. The Los Angeles Times later reported that the issue of whether money mattered weighed significantly in the justice's thinking. Powell did not himself claim that poor children of color could not learn or that schools did not matter. But the growing skepticism about education... Nobody, nobody thoughtful, nobody intelligent, nobody adult argues that poor children of color can't learn. Right? That's not the discussion. We're talking about what are the most productive uses of society's resources and you know, how much freedom are you willing to give up to achieve more and more equality? was deeply linked to that very idea. The shadow of Brown versus Board of Education seemed to loom large in the case, but not in the way many expected. Enforcing desegregation had prompted a furious backlash and a host of practical difficulties that engulfed the court in litigation for decades to come. Deciding for the plaintiffs in the Rodriguez case, Powell wrote, would have led to an unprecedented upheaval in public education. Of course, Brown had led to such an upheaval. But Powell seemed to conclude that it simply wasn't worth it this time. Powell felt that it would lead the Supreme Court into morass, like Brown versus the board, recalls Mark Udoff, a lawyer who worked on the case for the San Antonio parents. It was a fear of being dragged into this unknown terrain yeah, it's a fear of the democratic process. It's a fear of allowing people to vote for representatives to carry out their laws. That's what this fear is. We can't allow this sort of thing to be decided by democracy. We need more rule by experts, right? We need an elite few to make the most important decisions, right? Rule by experts, not rule by the people's representatives probably was the strongest factor. To Justice Thurgood Marshall, who had spearheaded the Brown litigation as a lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, the majority opinion was a betrayal of Brown. The majority's holding can only be seen as a retreat from our historic commitment to a quality of educational opportunity. He wrote in dissent. What historical commitment to educational... Equality of opportunity. I mean, reality has always been hierarchical. So let me get to the chat. 40, have you interviewed Aaron Brockovich? No, I never have. Is universal academic education beyond roughly age 13 a good investment for society? I'd be happy to just uh, go wherever the evidence suggests. So in Australia, most kids left by age 16 until about 20 years ago, only about 5% of Australian high school students went on to university. Only about uh, 20, 25% of Australian high school students went through 12th grade. Most of them left after 10th grade. So it seems to me that schooling, probably universal schooling, is usually the best thing for people up until about age 14, 15, 16. That's, that's what I suspect. But the 
the case was over. There would be no federal right to an education, then or now. Dozens of lawsuits in lower courts were suddenly dead. I cannot avoid at this moment feeling deep and bitter resentment against the Supreme Jurists and the persons who nominated them to that high position. Demetrio Rodriguez told the New York Times after the decision. The legal sites over... Okay, the guy's lucky enough to live in a country that provides him more prosperity, more opportunity than 99.9% .9 of people in history have enjoyed, but he feels deep resentment about how his society has screwed him over. School funding were just beginning. After the loss in 1973, lawyers and advocates shifted their focus to state courts. They sued under state constitutions, which, unlike the federal constitution, typically guarantee some form of an education explicitly, and won a string of victories in a number of states. That included Texas, where Demetrio Rodriguez and other parents won a decision in 1989, which eventually resulted in some property taxes from wealthy areas being redistributed to poor communities a scheme dubbed by Texas politicians as Robin Hood. I cried this morning because this is something that has been in my heart, said Rodriguez at the time. My children will not benefit from it. So Nikki Haley apparently running for U.S. president. Does uh, she have anything to offer aside from charisma? And she can be good on TV. But I, I don't see any depth there. I have no reason to feel any sense of excitement over Nikki Haley. And do about it now. Meanwhile, the debate about money in schools had also shifted. In the decades that followed Rodriguez, many politicians and researchers continued to question whether more dollars bought more learning. But this contention became much less linked to racist and classist assumptions about which children could learn. Instead, it focused on whether public schools were functional enough to use money effectively. More recently, the debate has shifted once again. In a seminal 2016 paper, three economists found that children benefited when their schools got extra money due to a state court order. Okay, so I'm happy to go wherever the evidence suggests. Uh, I don't have such a strong ideological commitment to either perspective if, if it becomes you know, dominantly empirically clear that spending more money on public school education will be better for society, then I'm down with it. Other research examining different funding changes has generally reached a similar conclusion. Students, particularly low-income students, typically do better when schools get more funding. The results are very, very consistent, said Carabo Jackson a Northwestern University economist and leading researcher on school funding. The vast majority of these studies find positive effects on student outcomes. Yeah, but how big are these positive effects? What's the correlation? What's the bang for the buck? Research in the wake of the Coleman report has also shown that while out-of-school factors like poverty do affect student learning, schools and teachers matter too. Of course. The above history might give us pause before too quickly accepting the confident claims of social science. But at the least, the new research has erased any scientific veneer behind the claim that money or schools don't matter. 
wait, 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 really? It's just totally erased that? I mean, how? who who has argued that you know, money in schools make no difference whatsoever? All right, we're talking about how big of a difference. We're talking about correlation. We're talking about bang for the buck, guys. Still, the court has not seriously reconsidered the Rodriguez decision. Instead, in 2009, it reiterated in even stronger terms that money is unlikely to improve schools. Admittedly, what the school funding system would have looked like today had the Supreme Court ruled differently in Rodriguez is unknowable. Jeffrey Sutton, a federal judge and former clerk to Lewis Powell, has argued that state courts proved better equipped to deal with local funding complexities and ended up successfully addressing the funding disparities in Texas and elsewhere. These court decisions really did help chip away at school funding disparities, although it took time. By 1992, the funding gap between poor and non-poor districts was down to 20%. At okay, so for the last 30 years, the funding gap is relatively minor, and yet uh, group differences haven't shifted significantly. What does that say? Come on, Vox. States began making up for property tax differences. Presently, the gap, contrary to conventional wisdom, is basically zero on a national level. Edgewood, for instance, receives similar funding as Alamo Heights all these years later. But other legal scholars take the view that federal courts abdicated their responsibility and could be doing more. They point out that funding gaps still do exist in certain places and that there is a consensus that children in poverty need not simply equal funding for their education, but more. In 2016, a handful of students in Detroit filed a lawsuit in federal court seeking a right to read. After a fleeting victory before an appeals court, the full circuit court vacated the decision. In the end, the... Uh, a right to read? So without spending a trillion dollars more in government spending, they... These poor kids just have, have no right to read. They are being prevented from, from reading. It's managed a meager settlement with the state of Michigan in 2020. Governor Gretchen Whitmer promised to seek $94 million in extra funding for the city's schools. But to date, it has not been funded. It was nearly 50 years after Rodriguez, but the decision loomed large. It also has loomed in the background of Alex Rodriguez's life. After the decision, his schools, not surprisingly, didn't change much. In the years that followed, the funding gap between Edgewood and Alamo Heights actually grew larger. Rodriguez graduated from high school in 1979 with little idea of what to do next. No one at the school had suggested he go to college. Oh my God, that's awful. He graduated high school with a little idea of what to do next, and, and nobody apparently suggested he go to college, which is, is the norm in Australia, norm in most of the world, is you don't go on to tertiary education. How this poor man has suffered. Oh, too awful for words. He doesn't even recall thinking that was an option. Rodriguez worked for a while at an auto parts store and then got a job driving a city bus. He did. Why would they leave Rodriguez alone? Why won't they leave Rodriguez alone? Why do they have to keep stamping on his dreams of a tertiary education? That for 36 years, 
logging over two million miles. He retired just over a year ago. He lives a busy, fulfilling life now, running errands for his family, working on his truck, spending time with grandkids. He lives in the same house as his parents did, the one on which cameras and reporters and lawyers descended 50 years ago. He has what he needs and doesn't want more than that. He doesn't live with any regrets. But Alex Rodriguez also understands that he was shortchanged. Oh, the poor guy, all right? He he drove a, a school bus, was it, for, for 36 years? He has everything he, he needs. But if, if his school district had just received 30% more funding, he'd be a rocket scientist. He'd be a nuclear scientist. He would have become a doctor or an attorney or an accountant or a CEO. No, he ended up in, in a job that was excellent for him. There's nothing dishonorable about driving a school bus. And you could have funded his school district at twice the rate that it received funding. And uh, Mr. Rodriguez here would not have gone on to become some award-winning scientist, entrepreneur, uh, record breaker in, in business or an academic scholarship. Okay, that's it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.